Right now, we're going to send this over to Burley, and we're going to be talking to the overseer of the history book, the man that keeps the pen and the quill in his hand, ready to take notes as to any historical, or for that matter, hysterical happening. Here he is, Dr. History. You covered that pretty well, Zeb. I thought so. <laughs> we do go from one end to the other, don't we? Oh, we do, we do. How are you this morning? I'm doing great. Doing great. Well, you know, I was just saying about hay fever season, and I get the allergies, especially with all the bean dust and everything, and it's kind of hard on my throat. Uh, you, of course, are Mr. Perfect. You don't have those. <laughs> well, you know, the smoke hasn't bothered me, really. I, I know a lot of people it does. Yeah. We've had it for about two months. It's been a little rough, and I really feel some compassion and empathy for those poor people that are on oxygen and everything else. It's got to be a real tough deal uh, with the breathing problems with all all the uh, mess that's in the air, if you will. Yeah, well, between the grain dust, the bean dust, and now with all the smoke, you know, yeah. it, it yeah. has been rough on them. Well, now, just tell me, overseer of hysterical and historical facts, what are we going to talk about this morning? Well, have you ever heard of the, to the term roving sky pilots? Roving sky pilots? Yeah. This sounds like a Sky King Western from the late 50s. <laughs> Not quite. Oh, okay. These, uh, actually, I've got two kind of short stories. If, if we get through this first one fat, quick enough, I'll go on to another one. That's, they're both totally unrelated, but uh, I think they're good. Okay, go uh, ahead. Okay, these guys were the Frontier Parsons, the ministers. Really? Yeah, and they called them Sky Pilots, and they moved throughout these untamed territories, and they had as much nerve and courage as a lot of the most famous gunmen. Oh, my goodness. And some, through sheer necessity, they actually did carry weapons, but most of them walked right into the middle of the gun smoke, armed with nothing but their courage and their Bibles. Uh-oh. And uh, good, one guy made the comment, he said, good society and morals uh, are strangers in this country. So, uh, you know, and you think about it, back in 1866 in the, that area, you know, the untamed camp towns, the gambling joints, the party houses, the saloons, the general stores, everything pretty much stayed open around the clock mm -hmm. Sunday. Mm -hmm. So no one really thought about going to church or Sunday worship, but there were a few guys that were out there preaching. Um, now, in 1870, there was a guy named Reverend Luther Hart Platt, and what he did, he'd walk right into the middle of the biggest gambling games in Wichita. He'd uh, tuck his uh, fiddle under his chin, and he'd begin a medley of the most popular ballads of the day. Once he got a good round of hand clapping and stomping going, he'd shift into his best collection uh, of hymns. And then he'd wind up his act by inviting everybody to come to his regular Sunday services in a specially built dugout, and he actually got results. And this so was in a saloon? What's that? He did this in a saloon? Yeah, he'd actually go right into the saloon and start playing his, uh, his fiddle. Oh, my. So, but there's some others that had some other ways, too. Uh, there was a guy named Reverend Henry Weston, and they called him uh, Preacher Smith. And uh, at one point, he went into the saloon. He, he talked 35 men and five of the ladies of interesting occupation into attending one of his sermons. Oh, tell us, uh, now what kind of occupations were those ladies in? I'm not sure what you're referring to. <laughs> oh, you always catch me on that. <laughs> I, I think they were singers. Oh, the Andrews sisters. Yeah, yeah I think it was the Andrews The sisters. Supremes. <laughs> yeah, that, that's who I'm talking about. But uh, he'd preach these rousing sermons uh, 
and he'd go to the saloons, and, uh, you know, the, the miners respected him. Even uh-huh. if they didn't always follow him, they respected this guy that would actually walk into a saloon. Now, the same guy, one day he told uh, some of his friendly congregation that he was going to be hiking over to uh, another camp to do a little missionary work. Mm-hmm. And his toughest friends, they advised him. They said, you know, you better take a gun because there's Indians out there. Well, he turned them down, and he said his strength was not in guns but in the Bible. And he'd gone about 12 miles when he actually was attacked and killed by some Indians. And But when they saw the Bible in, in his hands, they didn't scalp him. Uh, apparently they'd heard of his uh, uh, quote medicine I guess so mm-hmm. even the Indians had had a bit of, bit of respect for some of these uh, traveling ministers but anyway shortly after that time there's a uh, there was another freelance parson that hit Bismarck uh, Dakota territory and one Sunday he walked into a saloon where the sound of drinking men poker chips card arguments and all this going on and he jumped up on a table and he began to expound and exhort uh, the rough men to change their ways. Now, again, this takes a little courage, but uh, at the end of his short sermon, he passed his hat and actually collected $40 worth of chips. Oh, my. So he went to the cashier and converted his chips to money to fund his, his ministry. So, again, when you talk about courage, uh, you know, this is a rough bunch of people. You know that. Yeah, and then he then he gave the $40 to the Andrews sisters to be the church choir. <laughs> well, we don't, we're not sure what all he did with that $40. But, but anyway, then, you know, a little later, the coming of the sod house settler era, why, you know, the frontier minister's way of life began to change a little. Uh, for example, there was a guy named uh, Reverend Charles Wesley Wells, and this was about 1870. Uh, he began preaching at the age of 17, and the Methodist missionary organization was impressed by his uh, his zeal and his excitement, so they actually made him a full status as a minister. But he rode horseback or hitchhiked with friends through every kind of weather. I mean, blizzards, flash floods, windstorms, rainstorms, hailstorms, cold, heat. And he had about six scheduled meeting places along his route, and by hard riding, he could contact each congregation about every two weeks. So, but these horseback gospel men often acted as lawyers uh, to settlers, as uh, medical counselors where doctors weren't there. They had to fight Indians and stagecoach robbers a lot of times. And, and obviously, it wasn't a very well-paying occupation. And sometimes they worked as, as on ranchers or farmhands and even cooks, uh, salesmen, auctioneers. Uh, anything to you know to sustain them, but some of the ministers actually walked their circuits. And in 1858, there's a Reverend Evans in uh, Kansas that regularly walked a 250 mile circuit. Oh my Kansas. goodness sakes! Miles. Really? So, but he'd go through this uh, wild country unarmed. Now, on the other hand, there was a Reverend Moore in Nebraska, and he had legal permission to strap on his revolver when he mounted the pulpit, because uh, it seems his predecessor had been mobbed and beaten up with whiskey bottles during a church service. <laughs> when he said amen, brother, he meant it. <laughs> he meant amen and, and leave. <laughs> so, but uh, there was a, another famous guy. His name was Peter Cartwright. And he's credited with bringing the well-known camp meetings to perfection. Really? You've heard about these. But mm-hmm. About 1855, he ventured out into the Great Plains from Illinois to begin these camp meetings. And they usually lasted about two weeks. Uh, families in wagons would uh, come, horse-drawn, ox-drawn, whatever, and 
they'd meet near some uh, clear stream providing firewood and shade. The tabernacle was basically an outdoor arena with uh, seats of split logs, and they'd have oil-fired oil torches that would burn all night long, and uh, they'd have a trumpet or a bell that would sound the different uh, events. For example, at daybreak, they would sound a trumpet uh, to get everybody up, and then a half an hour later, there was another uh, trumpet that would sound, and that was for family prayers, and everybody had breakfast. Then at 9 o'clock, they'd have what they called a section worship, and then at 10 o'clock, another trumpet would sound, and all the campers would come to another worship, and then at 3 o'clock and 7 o'clock. So they were doing this all day long and into the night. Um, but between these activities uh, of combined services, uh, you know, a lot of fiery exhortations. Uh, uh, Sunday morning, that's when the testimonials resounded. Uh, oftentimes the presiding elder would preach, and then listeners would come up and expound or testify or whatever. And, and you know, you've seen it on TV, and I think it's similar to that. You know, the air was charged with uh, the excitement of, the, of what was going on. But, mm -hmm. You know, under these conditions, it's kind of understandable, too, that uh, between these sessions, uh, some of the single guys and gals uh, that uh, had been single for a while, they would kind of get reacquainted and uh, begin a courtship, and a lot of times that resulted in marriage, and, you know, the, you know why not? I mean, that's a good place to, to meet people. Absolutely. So, but that's kind of the story of the sky pilots or the roving ministers that traveled the old west now let me ask you a question right there the sky pilots now is this a phrase that you hung on those people or is this a phrase that was actually used back in the 1860s you know i had never heard of this before and so as i came across this article uh, this refers to them as roving sky pilots i i almost think that that's just a modern term that somebody has decided to throw onto this article. The reason I ask that is the only time that I've heard the word pilot used in the 1860s and 1870s was in riverboat traffic with the piloting of the boats up and down the Mississippi River. I've never heard the word pilot used in the uh, verbiage that you had. Right. And, and like I say, I don't think it was back then. I think it's just a, a, how they titled this particular article Yeah. in modern day. Okay, well, you still got about uh, nine minutes left to hit us with okay. another. I know you're going to tell us another story about uh, one of these uh, circuit preachers uh, going to these various places as a talent scout, finding all these singers. <laughs> Actually, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to totally switch gears. Uh-oh. But, but I'm going to come into Idaho here, a little closer to home. Okay, good. I'm tell you about a gal named Peg Leg Annie. Peg. Peg. Peg Leg Annie. You think I'm going to touch that story? You're crazy. Go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> well, about the time that Dole Sherman was making his famous march to the sea, uh, they discovered a rich ledge of gold bearing rock, and it was discovered in southwestern Idaho. Okay. And some of the Confederate sympathizers that were there, they named the mining camp Atlanta. And you've heard of Atlanta. I've been there. Over yeah, and because they named it in honor of, of Atlanta, Georgia. Mm -hmm. Well, this community and the other one nearby, Rocky Bar, yep. you've heard of that, yep. uh, which was another uh, mining camp nearby, uh, they became two of the most rip-roaring boom towns in the gold fields. Well, about that time, about four years after these started, there was a, a baby girl born uh, in 1868, and uh, she was des destined to be kinda, uh, become a kind of a heroine. 
But she was she had all kinds of unfortunate things happen. Her name was Annie McIntyre. And her dad, uh, her mom died when she was born, and Annie's dad was named Steve, and he was owner of one of the richest gold mines in the territory, but he got involved into a street brawl, and he was killed. Well, Annie was left, uh, she was just a young gal, and she married a guy named Morrow. Annie, Annie Morrow was her name, but he died at an early age, leaving her with five children. So, anyway... Uh, and there's a picture of her, and she is a very attractive gal. I mean, dark eyes, brown hair, um, and so obviously she was a natural target for some of the other miners. But uh, Annie uh, carried a small revolver in a horse uh, in a holster, strapped around around her waist, and when a customer became too obnoxious in her boarding house or her restaurant, she just fire a couple of rounds, and uh, usually that pretty well took care of things. At him, or the ceiling, or the floor, or what? It doesn't say. Uh-huh. But, it, but evidently it got the message across. <laughs> Amen, brother. <laughs> yeah. So, but, uh, you know, sometimes individuals or people would come in, families that were stranded, penniless, in Atlanta. Annie was kind of a Florence Nightingale of the area. Mm-hmm. I mean, no one was ever turned away from her door empty-handed. If they were destitute, had no place to stay, they were hungry, if they were sick, she opened up her restaurant and her boarding house to these people. Now, one of her good friends, I know we're running out of time, so I'll kind of get through this, but one of her good friends was a Dutch lady, or a German lady, and they called her Dutch Emma. And she was a pretty rough, rough gal. I mean, she uh, supposedly knew seven different languages, languages, and she could cuss out a minor in all seven languages uh, in no problem at all. But anyway, uh, in late spring of 1898, uh, Dutch Emma and Anna decided that they were going to uh, go from Atlanta over to Rocky Bar. Mm-hmm. Well, the two women had no reason to think there was going to be any problem because uh, it was late in the spring. But uh, anyway, uh, as they headed over that direction, a sudden blizzard hit right in those Rocky Mountains. And, and you know how it can hit right here in Idaho. Boy, yeah. But this deadly snowstorm raged for three solid days, and Annie and Dutch Emma didn't show up in Rocky Bar. So they sent out a search party, and lo and behold, they found... Annie, just delirious, she was cold, she was nearly frozen, Uh, all she had on was a dress, Um, anyway, it turns out that uh, uh, she was crawling on her hands and knees, uh, delirious, but they sent a a man from Atlanta over to Mountain Home to get a doctor, Mm -hmm. well, by the time the doctor got there, she had gangrene in both of her lower limbs, and so they amputated her uh, legs uh, above the ankles. but anyway, she recuperated, and they did find Dutch Emma's body, and uh, Annie had actually taken the clothes that she had, the coat or whatever, and tried to, to save Dutch Emma, but it didn't work. But anyway, uh, Annie covered, uh, recovered, and uh, uh, her uh, children uh, uh, gradually moved on, had, uh, had grandchildren. Um, she continued to work as far as she could. Well, whoa, 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 whoa. She got married then, right? Uh, yeah, she had married after her dad died. I see. And I she see. had the five kids. Oh, five? Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. Before she lost her, her feet. I see. But uh, in 19... She actually lived at the, until about 1924. She'd saved $12,000. And here's a woman that had helped so many people, but she gave this life savings to a friend to take to a bank in San Francisco. Well, the friend and the money dropped out of sight. Well, it it was all of her money. 
And so in her declining years, she basically was on her own. Uh, she died in 1934 and is buried in Mountain Home. Okay, now wait a minute. Uh, there's a couple of questions I got here. She gave okay. 12000 bucks to a friend to invest in a bank in San Francisco. Well, the, to take to the bank. Oh, well, there's banks in Idaho. There were banks in Boise and Mountain Home. Yeah. I, you know, who knows? I mean, you know, San Francisco was kind of the the big league, I guess. Maybe she thought that it would be safer there. I don't know. But it would take, like, from here to Frisco, if you were on a stagecoach, back in what year? Uh, 1924. 1924? Oh, you're still talking about, uh, what, three, four, five days? Well, even by train. Yeah. It would have taken, you know quite a bit of time so the friend basically wasn't such a great friend and it was bye bye twelve thousand bucks huh twelve thousand dollars in 1924 you know it'd be worth ten times that amount today or more easy yeah, yeah. And, and so yeah. she died all by herself yeah she just kind of you know it doesn't say anything about her kids or she didn't have any money she was supported by her friends uh, how did she get so around she, you never did explain that she lost, lost both of her feet you said right Right. Yeah, they had to amputate both uh, above the ankles. And so and now she did. Uh, they did actually uh, uh, eventually figure out a way to have some uh, prosthetics, uh, some artificial limbs. Really. And so she was actually able to walk eventually. Oh my! But but you know back then, uh, you know, for both legs to be amputated, uh, it couldn't have been a pleasant thing anyway. Back oh, then. absolutely not. Well, but she was a, a courageous woman who had all kinds of bad luck, and yet, uh, you know, was a Florence Nightingale for travelers and people that were sick and people that were, uh, you know, had no place to stay. And mm-hmm. She boarded them in her boarding house, and she fed them in her restaurant. Uh, I mean, it was a haven for people that were unfortunate. Have you ever been? Have you ever been to Atlanta? Yeah, I've been over there. Uh huh. Yeah. Have you noticed when you drive into town and you go real slow, town being it as it is, that sometimes when the local pub is open and some of those people turn and press their faces up against the glass, that it reminds you of the movie Deliverance? <laughs> I, uh, I had never thought of that. <laughs> but it might make you a little nervous about uh, camping over there. <laughs> uh, yeah, so we have some interesting people in Idaho, don't we? Oh, my. <laughs> two of which are on the air right now. <laughs> That's right. We're probably about as bad as they get. Well, I'll tell you what, we've learned a lot today. We learned about uh, traveling circuit preachers that were also talent scouts for musical television shows. And uh, we learned all about Peg Leg Annie, and uh, you did it again. Very interesting dissertation this morning. Well, I, I always like the ones that are a little closer to home, like, you know, in Idaho here. Because, uh, you know, most people know, I mean, obviously they know Mountain Home, and, and probably most of them know, have heard of Atlanta and, and uh, you know, that area, Rocky Bar, and over in that area. You know what we ought to do sometime, uh, due to the fact that we're both so wealthy and so, uh, you know, we're just comfortable in our lifestyle that we don't have to work, <clears throat> we ought to just take a little road trip sometime, and your wife, my wife, you and I, and we'll just go around the state of Idaho and jot down all the personal stories that we get uh, on the road, and then kind of like the old Charles Corralt series, On the Road with Charles Corralt, we'll have this On the Road with Dr. History. 
Yeah, oh, that'd be great. You know, I, I've always thought that if I could ever retire, uh, <laughs> I would love to just take off. And in fact, uh, here in a couple of weeks, I am going to be gone because I'm going to be making a trip to Peoria, Illinois, okay. to visit a daughter. And on the way back, we're going to be stopping at some of the places like Mount Rushmore. I'm hoping to hit Cody, Wyoming, uh, the Buffalo Bill Museum, uh, maybe Custer's, uh, you know, uh, Battlefield. So I'm hoping to have some real-life, uh, you know, uh, stories to tell you that where I can actually be there. All right. Dr. History, better known as Dr. Ken Turner. God bless you, my friend. Take care. And okay. don't forget about all those different uh, ladies' groups that are trying to be singers. <laughs> I think they're sure optimists or optimists or something. I don't know. <laughs> God bless you. Have a good day. You have a good day. Then. Thank Bye. you, sir. Ah, I love that segment. Dr. History, thank you very much.